So John 9 is where I want to focus. Vision correction is really about the entire chapter of John 9. And it has to do with the healing, as we started to talk about this last week, the healing of the man who was born blind. It's one of the rare chapters in the Bible that is entirely devoted to one incident. And it's colorful. I mean, we're going to, in the coming weeks, the next four that lead into Easter, well, Palm Sunday and Easter, we're going we're gonna to really zero in on the narrative. That is the story. We're going to look at the account and get into the, all the exchanges that occur. It's really colorful. And to watch his transformation in faith, you know, I know, I know that um, even those of you who are watching with us right now at the Lake Merced campus, you may recall that we talked about his healing, or at least we said that's what was going to be happening. And we're going to dig into that and, then, and watch how he emerges as a, as a believer and eventually a confessor of Jesus. But it was a process that got him there. And, but we're going to talk about that. That's not my purpose this morning. My purpose actually this morning is to zero in on one phrase of Jesus that was right before, that he uttered right before uh, his, his healing touch. And it's something that I want us to also consider through the, through the sort of life that we have. I want to talk about the work that God wants us to do. And uh, you can see here in John 9, verses 1 through 4, we're just going to read them through. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. It's in the handout as well. If you have your Bible app, go for it. Any way that works. It says that he passed by. That's Jesus. He passed by. He saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, they said, and we talked about this again last week, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? That he was born like this, born blind, never saw anything in his entire life. We sat with that a little bit. Something none of us can relate to. I mean, to be, he never saw anything. All his world had been was darkness. And his disciples asked him, because they saw Jesus looking at him, and it caught their attention. Because Jesus was leaving, the, it seems, the temple into the city streets of Jerusalem, and he sees this man there who's begging. Maybe they had seen him before. Maybe they had walked by him before. But Jesus stops, and he starts looking at him. Well, that catches the disciples' attention. They don't know what to say. Jesus isn't saying anything. He's just looking at him as if he's listening. And maybe out of their discomfort or maybe out of their intrigue, they say, Lord, you know, situations like this make us wonder sometimes, like why they happen. And they reveal their presupposition in their worldview, right? Because what they say is, you know what? They don't even ask, Did, is this the reason? They just want to know, you know, who sinned to get this man in this place? Was it him? They didn't know anything about his life. Or was it something connected to his parents or his family? You know, something connected to a generational curse. They asked, well, that was the question they asked. It was theological. I don't blame them for wanting to know why. A lot of us want to know why. When things don't make sense. Why does God allow this? Or why does that happen to good people? All those questions. They're legit. It's interesting, though, what Jesus answers, verse 3, he says, 
It was not that this man sinned or his parents. No, I tell you, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And it wasn't like Jesus was saying, not that he was born blind so he could do a miracle. But what Jesus was getting at was that this man's blindness actually in this moment for Jesus was an opportunity. It was a moment for God's grace to be remarkably displayed. And there are many things going on here in this little simple little passage that opens up the ninth chapter. These words, there's so many things going on at, at multiple levels. We may look at it and go, oh yeah, you know, just Jesus making a statement. No, I, I, wanna, I want us to, if we can, note that when Jesus, and, I want, and I, what I'd like us to do is kind of look at this through both an artistic and a theological eye. So, but I want us to see it. When Jesus looked at this man, he saw clearly something. As the day was coming to his close, he saw in this man born blind a symbol of everything that he had come to address. At least in part, if we may say it, everything that Jesus was born to address, everything that he was going to address. The blindness, at least in part at a physical level, could be viewed as all disease, all suffering, all evil, all, and even death as a literal byproduct of, sin, of a sin-impacted broken world. But even more, it represented, it represented the spiritual condition of humanity, the utter darkness we find ourselves in apart from God's overture of love towards us, the very overture that Jesus was, the very light of the world that he declared himself to be. So Jesus sees in this man physically everything that he has done come to do spiritually, to open the eyes of the blind, to give his life that we might have life, right? We talk about this all the time. If you think about it in John 1, it sort of opens up that way as well, right? The whole book of John opens up, and you, oh, and watch, I'm just going to have us read through it, because I think it's really, I'm going to use this phrase, uh, eye-opening to see how the opening of the, of the book of John begins. And watch as we read through it, the weaving in of metaphor, light and life, darkness, things that the symbol, metaphor, watch what is going on here. So let's, I put this in the hand of John 1, 1 through, I'm just gonna read it, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time commenting. What I want us to see is how it perfectly sort of connects with what we're looking at. Because Jesus, it says in the beginning was the word, and the word was, was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made, and in him was life. And the life was what? There it is. The light of men. And that light shines, there it is, in the darkness. And the dark, so it opens up with this light and darkness. The very beginning of the message is, is, is like God is saying, into the darkness comes the light. It says, and the light and it says, all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. And in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a, a man sent from God. His name was John. This man came as the forerunner, a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. Now, this man, John, was not that light, but was sent to bear witness or to welcome in that light. That was the true light which gives light to everyone coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to even his own, those who should have seen, and his own did not receive him. But as many as do receive him, to them, to them he gives the right to become, to call themselves children of God, to those who believe in his name. Now, where are we there? 
If you look at, though, again, you see the, you see the weaving together. Now, shift back to the account, John 9. We're back there again. And let's think of a, in our mind of the pictures of the streets in Jerusalem. Maybe they, we, I asked if they could just put something up to just sort of set the mood for us. There, you can kind of get a sense even from these relatively modern shots which capture the streets of Jerusalem even today. The ancient feel of it is still there in the old city. And some places where Jesus walked literally are still there. Some of those stones, he walked, he, <laughs> I mean, these are the places. Now, again, the sun was falling, the shadows are growing on the cream-colored stone streets of Jerusalem. And one wonders if, if the whole idea of the lostness of humanity and the idea of him coming as the light of the world was on his mind when he pauses to gaze into the face of that man more blind. Like he's thinking about everything he's come to do to bring light into the darkness, to bring light to those who've never seen, not just physical, but spiritually. And as he's looking at this man, the disciples notice it, right? We talked about that. They notice their, that his fixed gaze and they ask their question and that question that revealed their presupposition. But peering at them, when they asked the question, Lord, was this man, who sinned? Who sinned? His, his, did he do it or was it his parents? Jesus looks back at them. I, I imagine him pulling his eyes off the man, looking at them, back at him and saying, None of, neither of them did. It was not that this man sinned, nor his parents. No, I tell you, but that the works of God may be displayed in him. And then verse 4, and key, no, I tell you, that we must work the works of him who sent, sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Well, that's Jesus' answer to that. I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about what he says. Can, well, can you, hear, can you hear in that answer? Can you hear, if you listen closely, can you hear the cross? Because it's there. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. See, Jesus, stay with me on this, was cognizant of his limited day. It was on his mind. He knew it was coming to its close. The hour from which he was born was soon to be at hand. He was under no illusions. He saw the cross looming. His day, his earthly ministry was nearing its close. And you know, in the natural some days are shorter and some, some are longer. But the truth is, none of us knows, if we can use the metaphor of Jesus, no one knows the length of our day. No one knows really how long we're going to live on this side. We don't know it. Um, we don't know the span of our life. We don't know how many years really we have. We don't know when our last day. We all have a last day on the calendar somewhere. Just as real as we had a first day. You know, um, speaking of length of days, today is my wife. Today is my wife's birthday, right? Yeah, it's really cool. And um, <laughs> it's special meaning for me because, um, and I'm not, and believe me, I am not going to tell you um, how old she is. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> what I will say that she is a beautiful woman on the inside as well as on the outside. Speaking of the outside, I mean, my oldest daughter was joking with us because we were both sitting at the table last week and, 
And she said, she, somebody, I don't know how it came up. It was like, you know, because I think it had to do with them. She, they were talking about Cheryl's, their mom's birthday coming up next Sunday, being on a Sunday. And they said, um, man, mom, you look so much younger than you are. And I said, you know, what about, you know, what about me? What about me? <laughs> and they go, no, mom looks about 10 to 15 years younger, she says, but you look your age, right? <laughs> Thank you, Chloe. I appreciate that. Um, so how old is my wife? Well, I'll give you two clues. She is older than me. Ha, ha, ha. By two months, okay? <laughs> By two months. And that always plays really big for me because there's like these moments where I go, oh, you're this age and I'm still this age, right? <laughs> but it really is nice at a decade, right? Because all of a sudden, whoo, you're way up there right now. I'm still over here in this decade. And we always have a lot of fun with that. But here's another clue. Here's another clue that I'll make. Not only is she two months older than me, but I've been married to her for 34 of her birthdays. Yeah, wow, that is right. And as I kissed her before leaving for church, I had one of those moments where I was both grateful and reflective, grateful for having had her for so many years, almost like just for a moment, I didn't take it for granted for a second, oh, and then reflected that so many had flown by, like, wow. You know, we have a limited day, loved ones, and uh, our time will not be forever on this side of the great divide. It's not going to be. And I, I don't know about you, but I was thinking a lot about this because, um, you know, it got me thinking about our limited day. Jesus talked about, do, do not always, do you don't, it will not always be day, Jesus was saying. Night comes when you can no longer do the work. And I was thinking about that also because of what's been in the news, obviously, last week. I mean, the death of Billy Graham. Stunning, right? The, the extraordinary life of a man who's even now being celebrated, I guarantee you, on all the weekend shows and all the news talk and everything else, Billy Graham is going to be a big part of the discussion. He's going to be a part of our national discussion all through the week as his body is brought to the rotunda. And, you know, people honor his contribution. I mean, Billy Graham was, and they could put a, you know, we had a little shot of him both as a younger man and as a much more aged man, is one of the most remarkable figures in history ever. If you think about it this way, he preached to more people the message of Jesus than any human being who has ever lived. That is stunning. They call him America's, America's pastor. Part of it had to do with just the timing in which he lived, the uniqueness of the technologies he, he employed. But one of the most amazing things about this man was, was the, the way he conducted himself. Not per, no one's perfect, but just a testimony of duration and of of consistency and integrity that no one's ashamed of, of, of his life. He finished well, a remark, and then almost living to be 100 years, almost 100 years old. This is an extraordinary thing to have. There'll never be another person like him. You know, I, I was thinking about it because a few years back, I was reading actually a book that he wrote. It was called, um, it was called Nearing Home, this book. And uh, I actually, again, 
uh, I want, I'm just going to read the front opening of it just because I, I think he's been so much a part of our discussion. And I'm thinking about the span of our day and the life of what Jesus said. This is what Graham wrote. He says, I never thought I would live to be this old. For one, he assumed he was going to die young. The reason he thought he was going to die young, if you, if you read about his life, is he, he thought the way he, he lived hard in terms of just the hours that he lived, he, was, he poured his soul into it. He was traveling all the time. He would, had long hours. He was just a really a hard worker. And, his, and longevity wasn't in his family's uh, line, so he just assumed he was going to die young, that was, or at least not live long. So he says, I never thought I would live to be this old. All my life I was taught how to die as a Christian. But no one ever taught me how I ought to live in the years before I die. I wish they had because I'm an old man now. And believe me, it's not easy. Whoever first said it was right, old age is not, and this is, he uses his line, old age is, is, a, is, a, is not for sissies, is what he wrote. <laughs> Get any group of older people together and I can almost guarantee what their favorite topic of conversation is going to be their latest aches and pains. I will soon celebrate my 93rd birthday. So he wrote this almost six years ago. And I know it won't be long before God calls me home to heaven. More than ever, I look forward to that day. Not just because of the wonders I know heaven holds in store for me and for every believer, but because I know that finally all the burdens and sorrows that press down upon me at this stage of my life, they're going to be over. During the last year, the physical ailments common to old age really have taken their toll on me. And I also look forward to that day because I will be reunited with Ruth, my beloved wife, and my best friend for almost 64 years, who went home in 2007 to be with the Lord she loved and served so faithfully. And although I rejoice that her struggles with weakness and pain have all come to an end, I still feel as if a part of me has been ripped out. He's 93. I miss her far more than I could have ever imagined. While the Bible doesn't gloss over the problems we face as we grow older, neither does it paint old age, though, as a time to be despised or a burden to be endured with gritted teeth. That is, if you have any left. Uh, that's what he says, not me. Okay. He says, nor does it picture us in our latter years as just useless and ineffective, condemned to spend our last days in endless boredom or meaningless activity until God finally takes us home. No, instead the Bible says that God has a reason for keeping us here, and if he didn't, he would take us to heaven far sooner. Someday our life's journey will be over, and in a sense we all are nearing home more than we know. As we do so, I pray that you and I may not only learn what it means to grow older, but with God's help also learn to grow older with grace and find the guidance needed to finish well. And then I had read an article um, in which it says that throughout his life, Billy Graham had an air of, I'm not important, God is important. It didn't seem like a line, but a conviction. He said once, I'm not going to heaven because I've preached to great crowds. I'm going to heaven just like the thief on the cross who said in the last moment, Lord, remember me. And Christ said to him, this day you'll be with me in paradise. And since Wednesday morning, last week, one of his quotes was all over social media. I asked if they could put it up. This is what it says. Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I shall be a more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone, wow, into the presence of God. Isn't that amazing? I love that. 
And you, 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 when, I, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, man, Lord, we all have a day. Now, I don't think many of us, all of us, should assume we're going to live to be 99. That's, that's pretty amazing. But can you hear me when I say that the time to, listen, the time to honor God is now, while it is day. God has work for us to do today, between the now and that day, whatever it is. But we all will have one. Some of us are going to ease into it like a day turning into twilight and then into darkness. Others of us is going to end more abruptly. But I'm not just talking about having our relationship with God so that we can go to heaven after this life is done. That's big. I don't want to diminish it even by the way my tone was right there. But, but the Lord is also reminding us that that should impact the way we live now. That the reality of where we're going is not just meant to affect us in terms of how we think about what we can never really understand and are a little bit afraid of. And probably the only real way we get prepared for it is this body of ours starts to give out to such a degree that we start to yearn for it. We yearn for a new beginning. Because the old cannot contain the spirit within it. Like this body, like a tent, wears down. Even the most youngest among us at some point will walk this line. Some, and what I'm saying is between now and then, there is something that God has for us to contribute while we have life, while we have breath, while we have energy, while we have capacity. This is our opportunity. There are people to love today. There are promises to keep today. There are resources not to clutch, but to give to the Lord's work today. There is service to render for him on his behalf today. While it is the day, while we have life, not tomorrow. The night is coming when none of us can work. There will come a day when we will not be able to do anything in his name on this side whether because our life ends or because we get to a point where there's not much more we can do than, than maybe even pray, which isn't something, no question. But there's a window of opportunity, is what I'm trying to get at, for each of us to lay up for ourselves, if we believe the words, if we believe the words of Jesus, who said, do not just focus on laying up treasure on this earth where moth and rust decay things and thieves break in and steal it away and economy turns and it's gone. Don't live your life like that, Jesus said. Lay up for yourself treasure. This is what he said. We can decide if we believe him or not. Lay up for yourselves instead, I tell you, Jesus said, treasure in heaven where no one can take it away and nothing can remove it. Neither moth nor rust can decay it, and no thief can break in and steal it. What you do in my name is sent somewhere, and it awaits you. There's power in that word. And that calls us to places where we start asking questions. And I want to, I don't, I'm not saying that, that this, I'm not saying that, oh, our life is so short to depress us. I would never do that. I'm saying it to impress us that we would press into the things that God is calling us to pursue and not delay and not put off tomorrow what today we should be doing. It's not always the big things either. It's the small things that God notices that sometimes no one else sees. Now, sometimes people do see them. That's fine. 
That's good. A lot of people saw a lot of what Billy Graham did. But in the end, the Lord sees all kinds of things. And what he asks of us is to be responsible for what he's called us to do. And so I'm just going to put, I only have a few minutes left. I want to put a couple of things very quickly up on the board. I'm going to ask a question. It goes back to the fourth verse that if we just flip it back up real quick, that fourth verse, if you can. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. There it is, you guys. The night is coming when no one can work. You see that second word there? We what? Must. We must. Interesting, Jesus used that word. He goes, we must. So the question I have is, do we have a must? I think we need one. And we need a big picture must, if I can put it that way. A driving, guiding principle that brings meaning to our life. What is at the center of our life? The sun, you know, that the sun, the sun around which everything orbits. Is the sun the sun around every, which everything orbits in our life? Right? What is at the center of our life? What is the dominant principle of our life? Seek first, Jesus said, the kingdom of God, the loving realm of Jesus at work in your life, and order everything off of it, and all these things shall be added unto you. They'll fall right in their proper place. If you keep the first thing first. So in the big picture, we need a must. And in the little picture, I think I'm going to call it the seasonal picture we need a must. We need something that we are pursuing at this stage of our life that we can connect to God. We should be able to put our finger on it. Something that motivates us. Because if we are not pursuing, if we don't have a must, you know what we do? We start drifting. And human beings, as we are in this present state, when we drift, we usually drift into trouble. Our natural drift is not to improvement. Our natural drift is to get ourselves in trouble. Our natural drift is to get ourselves addicted to things. Our natural drift, especially in a toxic culture like ours, is to get ourselves damaged. So one of the best things we can do to combat drift in our lives is to have an operating must in our lives. Which is why it is essential to, at this stage in our life, wherever it is, to think about what is God calling me to do where I am. And that leads to the second piece here, which is this. What is the work he has for us to do in this season, in this day, to use the language of Jesus? Some of us may recall that last week we talked about the work that, we, that God may want to do in us. We talked about how to live in the wise of our life, not getting stuck there. But this is more about what is the work, not that so much that God wants to do in us, but what is the work that he wants to come from us, right? Through us, if you will. What is our seasonal calling? Now, I don't have time to talk about it a lot, but I was reading a book called Courage and Calling by Gordon Smith, who's really a great writer. And he talks about vocational life transitions. And it's a really good book, by the way, if you're a younger adult, especially if you're in your 20s or your 30s. He talks about, probably, he calls them strategic life transitions vocationally, where you're trying to find yourself, what am I supposed to do with my life? And how does God play into that? I could talk about that for a while. He says there's basically three. I'm not going to go into all of them all, but he talks about um, one that happens when we're going from kind of like adolescence into our adulthood. He's talking about those 20-something years where we're trying to find out who we are. He talks about that other transition he calls a vocational transition. That's your, when you're trying to figure out where, who am I supposed to be, my job. He talks about going from the sort of young adulthood into that 
that middle, those middle years, how when we get into our 30s, we tend to have a sense of what we're probably supposed to be doing, we're going to do for the next 20 years or so. And then he talked about that other really strange one at the back end of our life, where we transition out of our jobs into, our, into our, either a second life or into retirement. And those are three vocational transition points. Anyway, in the course of that, the discussion, he quotes Emerson, who I put in your handout there. And look what Emerson wrote. And I just want us to look at it real quickly here. Because again, we're talking about how we live out our day, right? We're talking about what Jesus said. Don't assume you will always have a day. What what does Emerson write? And and he says this in in what he calls self-reliance. He says, there is a time in every, just, and be okay with the language. It's different than we use today. I'm just going to read it as it is. There is a time in every man's education when he arrives, I would say in everyone's education, when they arrive at the conviction that envy is ignorance. Don't run past that. Don't run past that. Envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide. That we must take ourselves for better or worse as our portion. That through the wide, though the wide universe is full of good, no kernel of nourishing corn can come to the one but through their toil bestowed on that plot of ground which is given them to till. So a couple of things stand out here. Do you see them? Envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide. Let us quit, loved ones, let us quit wishing to be somebody else. Instead, focus on being our authentic God-created selves. And even more specifically, for those of us who follow Jesus, let us seek to be the unique workmanship that he has made us to be the best authentic God-created self we can be. Because the Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we are his workmanship, his art, the products of his creative impulse, created in Christ Jesus for good works, born to serve, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word for workmanship is poema. In the Greek, it means poem. We are like, he's like writing us. If I can say it this way, um, we, are this, we are in the eyes of Jesus this wondrously flawed, beautiful, epic poem. Because we're capable of the sublime and the heroic and the beautiful, we've been created to, to be filled with good works. We must work the work of him who sent us. Go back and, and, and look at that Emerson quote, but through the, his toil bestowed on the plot of ground which is given to him to till, it, listen, stay with me. It reinforces that so much meaning is found in doing the work that Jesus taught us as we have been given to do on the ground we've been called to do it on. And so, and I'm going to just say these things fairly quickly. Coming off of that, I just want to submit a couple of things. And I'll, I'll try to do it as quickly as I can without necessarily rushing past it. What this implies, if we combine what Jesus was saying with what we just looked at, what Emerson wrote, thinking about the span of our day and its limitations, this is what I want to suggest we consider. Accepting with grace our limitations is number one. Smith talks about that. It's like refuse to live in an illusion. Become to peace with our story as it's unfolding. Um, Don't get, listen, don't get stuck in envy. And don't get stuck in imitation. A lot of times say, oh, if I was only like this person, or if I had their things, if I looked like this, whatever. There, you get to a point, he says, where you, when you really grow, you've, you realize that envy is, is don't, don't do it, don't get stuck in it. Accept the, we need to accept the better and worse of, of what God has given us to use. And then, as we own that, as we honor that in our lives, all of it, and we submit it to him, then we take responsibility, if you can, for our giftedness, right? So instead of saying, oh, if I was only this or that, we begin to use our imagination 
And we begin to say, Lord, how can you use me on the plot of ground that you've called me to as the unique person you've made me to honor you in the limited day that I have? What would that look like right now where I'm at? Not somewhere else, not trying to be like anybody else, just being who you made me to be and trying to honor you as best as I can in the time that I've been given where I'm at, on the ground that I've been given to toil on, to do my work on. What is the poem you want me to be right there, not getting stuck in attitudes that, that are just, you know, unhelpful, can't change my past. I'm not going to worry about what you have or why I'm not like that. Or if I had these gifts, ah, oh. no, who did he make me to be? How do I honor him with it in this day on the ground that he's given me to live it out in and on? Last thing I'll say, and we roll it out in the form of a question. And it is this. Where in the kingdom are we serving? The kingdom of Jesus. And what works are we working for the Lord while it is day? That's my question. Maybe small. Look, um, if you have a chance, if you could, uh, can you just like look at your fingernails? Because you should see some kingdom soil in those fingernails. <laughs> is there any? Mine are clean. That's not good. Is there any kingdom soil in these fingernails? Or is it only stuff that I'm working on? The soil of my choosing? Is there any connection? If I were to say, Lord, I have something. Here it is. It's there. I work in the soil of the kingdom. I'm serving. Someone will say, oh, how, what are you talking about? Well, it may be sound so simple. But Jesus said, if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Greeting and seating a guest. Oh, hosting a small group. Praying a prayer for a wounded soul as part of a prayer team. Hosting a new here um, to help new ones find their way. Holding a baby in the nursery. Teaching a child about the love of Jesus. Um, giving them an, an, a gift that will stay with them like what was given to me for the rest of our lives. Sharing some coffee or some amazing toast and a smile in his name in the Mission Java or at Lake Merced. Moving a camera. Thank you. <laughs> Pressing a button that lights up a room so people can worship God together in a joyful place. <laughs> Setting up a church like what happens every week at the Lake Merced campus or tearing down one, parking a car so that other people can have a joyful experience in the Lord's house, teaching a Bible study because someone taught us. Come on now then, what kingdom soil is under the fingernails? Pastor, you're trying to manipulate us into serving, aren't you? <laughs> Partly yes. But the other part is I'm trying to motivate us to get to work on the things that really matter. Because I believe truly that no little thing goes unnoticed by the Lord when it's done in his name. And that serving at all levels, not only does it bless others, but it helps us. It keeps us tethered in community in ways that wouldn't happen. And it makes our faith more than just receiving. It means we're giving. And I've never seen a spiritual muscle that works best, just like any natural muscle, when it's only sitting there doing very little, but watching. 
The strength grows in the doing. Show me your faith, James says. Faith without works, empty and dead. Kingdom soil under our fingernails. So, we're going to close. Have our time of giving. If you feel so inclined, I'm going to motivate, manipulate you into um, (laughs) considering being part of a seasonal volunteering for our Easter time. We need some help from all of our people who claim this to be their church. Consider helping us be a part of it at a deeper level. So we'll pray. This will happen at both campuses right now. So I ask for your blessing, Jesus, over our time. We've shared this word, maybe taken a tad, a little bit longer than I might have, but I ask that you would just be with us right now, convict our hearts about being a part of something that's bigger than ourselves and investing even in small ways, in the ways of service in your kingdom. Bless those who volunteer in our teams. Thank you for their sacrifice. I thank you for those who sacrifice, um, who've poured out their hearts on, on behalf of others in your name. I ask for your blessing as we close out the service. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen and amen.